morning once again. My name is Dion. I'm so glad that you're here as we are in this series, The Human Race, talking about what really makes a life worth living, what makes us truly human. Now, before I dive into today's, to today's topic, I want to give a shout out to my mom because today is her birthday. So happy birthday, mom. Yeah. She's a live streamer in a outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. So uh, I love you, mom. One of the things about my mom that's so incredible, she's got a lot of incredible qualities, but one of the things that I admire her for most is that she raised a child like me. Um, and I wasn't the worst kid, but I wasn't the easiest kid either. In fact, um, growing up, I was kind of the mix of two very difficult temperaments. I was a kid who was horribly impatient and also a kid who was um, just, just kind of defiantly independent. So I was, I was, you know, um, impatient and independent, and those things together do not make for an easy child to raise. So um, there were lots of little scrapes along the way where those things came to bear, and my mom had to deal with it. Um, in fact, uh, here's a picture of me when I was about three years old uh, with my two sisters. Now, my son Corbin asked after he saw this picture, he was like, so dad, which one are you? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that's me and my two sisters. I'm the one with the long hair right here. So, um, so yeah, that was me at about age three. And I have, a, I have a memory of being about three years old and my mom promised me a haircut, which you can see I needed. Um, so she promised me a haircut, but she said I had to wait the next day for it. And I was not, I was not excited about that because I was impatient. And so I didn't want to wait for the next day. So I kind of, you know, grumbled and pushed back and she said, no, you're going to have to wait for it. And then it dawned on me, not only am I impatient, but I'm independent. I don't need my mom to cut my hair. And so um, and I pushed a stool up to the refrigerator and climbed on top of the stool. And on top of the refrigerator was where the scissors were kept. And you will understand why they were kept there in a moment. Um, and uh, I got up there on that stool. I grabbed the scissors in my hand. And I had seen this done a million times before. How hard can it be? So I you know, grabbed a lock of hair right there in the front. And I chopped it right as someone walked into the kitchen and saw me. And in horror, stopped me. And I still think if they wouldn't have stopped me, it would have been fine. It would have been awesome, in fact. It may have just, you know, stopped me from having a great career in the hair industry. I'm not sure. But um, that's the kind of stuff that my mom had to deal with, the, the impatience and the independence together. Now, both of those things have plagued me throughout, throughout all of my life. Um, but specifically independence, that, that's something that I just, I could never quite grow out of. Um, when I got into school, I discovered that teachers love to give you something called group work. Does anyone else hate group work? I'm just wondering. Yeah, I never understood the point of group work. I, I, I didn't get it. It just, as far as I was con- concerned, having to work in groups just meant that people were there to slow you down. You had more people to drag along with you to the finish line. And then when you got there, they were only going to steal part of your credit, which didn't seem right or fair to me. And so I, I hated group work. And, and uh, so, you know, I was independent in school. I was independent also in relationships. I remember a time where uh, my wife Jocelyn and I, before we were married, when we were dating, um, one day it just, you know, for the sake of honesty and full disclosure, it, it made sense for me to, to tell her. And here's what I told her. I said, hey, just so you know, I don't need you. <laughs> you know, I don't need anyone in my life. You, you, I, I want you in my life. You add good things to my life. It's certainly better with you. But, I, but just let's be clear here. I don't, I don't need you. Let me tell you, that conversation went really well. I don't know what possessed me to say that, other than just being honest, because that's how I've lived my life. Throughout my life, I've lived with the belief that true success means doing it alone, being successful alone, and winning as a team is not really winning. 
Now, chances are there are a number of you who actually agree with that, whether you admit it or not, which is why we as a nation have given so much trouble to the athletes Ryan Lochte and Gabby Douglas, right? Because here they were, they went, here they were, they went all the way to Rio and they came home only with, with a gold medal each in a team competition. What miserable failures, right? A gold medal, that's it. You know, but it's, it's in a relay and a team competition. That's not really winning for us. Admit it. That's how we, that's how we see things. If you're really going to win, if you're going to be great, that means being able to win on your own. Now, part of this, I think, is human. And I think part of this is distinctly American. Because let's remember that America was marketed to people who, to people who wanted to have a shot to do it all alone, to become self-made, to leave behind family and friends and community and everything they knew to have a chance to pursue life, liberty, and property in a new land so that they could be self-made. See, that's the history of America. And you know what? That story continues to be told. Uh, Let me show you this. Tell me, do you know who this is? Shout it out if you do. Steve Jobs. Yeah. So you know Steve Jobs. A number of you said that. Do you know who this guy is? Yeah, a few people know. Steve Wozniak, who is the co-founder of Apple Computer. Co-founder? What? No, I thought Steve Jobs did it alone. Not, not actually true. What about this guy? Bill Gates. Do you know who this guy is, this next guy? Yeah, I just... Uh, someone said it. Paul Allen. Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. Bill Gates had a co-founder? Yeah, this guy's a billionaire too. Uh, what about this guy? Okay, so... <laughs> You see where it's going. In our culture, we, we've got this ideal, don't we? And even when it's not true, even when Bill Gates has a Paul Allen, even when Steve Jobs has a Steve Wozniak, even, even when that's true, those guys at best get a, a footnote in the history books. We rewrite history. We shape our narratives to, to hold up this idea of true success means winning big, but winning alone. And as I've said, for most of my life, I have bought into that. I've struggled with that very, um, that, very, that very thought, that very narrative, and I think a lot of us have too. But here's what I want to say today. This idea that to win the race means winning alone, that the human race is an individual sport, it's all wrong. If, if you live life that way, even if you happen to get to the top of whatever mountain you're climbing and you get up on the summit and there's no one around you for miles and, and you can prove to the world that you did it, you did it by yourself, you did it your way, you're self-made, even if that's true, the reality is you're standing on top of that mountain and you're alone and you're missing out on so much of the richness that God has in, in store for us, so much of the richness that is meant to be ours as a part of our human experience. Today we're going to look at the words of Solomon, who was a king. I mean, if anyone stood alone, stood apart, it was a king. And Solomon was a king over the the nation of Israel. He was one of the wealthiest and wisest kings who had ever lived in their history. But Solomon also took time to write down his wisdom in a book called Ecclesiastes. And so today we're going to look into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And uh, as we do, we're going to learn about Solomon's view about what makes this human race that we're in truly meaningful. So uh, let's look, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting at verse 7. He starts off this way. He says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. So if you read through Ecclesiastes, you'll see a lot of sections beginning this way. Um, Solomon is a guy who um, was wise, as I said. He is a guy who, um, you know, like a lot of people sought counsel from him. And so he had a chance to learn from a lot of people's struggles and mistakes without making those struggles or mistakes 
himself. You know, it's kind of like pastors get to do that to you. I get to learn from all of you to go like, hey, note to self, don't ever do that. Um, so Solomon got to do some of that. Um, but Solomon was also a guy who was kind of, he experimented. He tried to figure things out. He actually used his life as an experiment to see what really made a life worth living. And so he would go and do all the things that, you know, people promised brought success and joy and happiness, and he would do those things. And then he would, he would chronicle it, and he would say, yeah, that didn't work out how I expected. Or here's what I discovered along the way. And so as you read through Ecclesiastes, you see this word over and over again that I saw something meaningless or vain or empty or not fulfilling. And often what Solomon does is he challenges things that we believe make a really rich and meaningful life. And he says, no, you know what? Actually, I've been there and I've discovered that it's empty. It's vain. It's, it's meaningless. So he's about to lay another one of these insights on us. And here's what he says in verse 8. He says, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So here's a guy. He's alone. He's a workaholic. But he's rich. He's wealthy. In other words, he's living the American dream. Right? He's got all this wealth, all of this success, and no one to take any of it from him. No one to steal any of his credit. He is standing apart, standing alone as a complete success. And yet, it says that his eyes were not content with his wealth. There's something missing in his life. He goes on. Uh, The man says, For whom am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, Solomon says. A miserable business. So while this guy seems to have everything and he seems to be winning in the human race, um, he discovers that there's something missing in his life. Now, I'll bet that there's some of you here today who who can really relate with this. Maybe you are at the top of your game career-wise. You have built a successful company. You're doing really well financially. Maybe you're running the model household and you've got, you've got the perfect kids who are smart and talented and they're all dressed well when you come to church. You guys look like you came out of a Gap ad. You know, maybe that's you. Maybe you're a student and you're not just a student, but you're a straight A student and you're an athlete and you're the most well-loved student. You're like the homecoming king or queen. Maybe you've... you've, you've You've got it all, or at least you appear to. And yet there's something within you that's saying, this isn't it. You're not content with all of that. Now, for for most of us, what we often do when we feel that is we say, oh, well, I guess I need to get more popular, get another A, or I need to have my kids look, you know, even, even be more impressive, or I need to make more money or move into a better neighborhood. We just pursue more of the same, and we hope that someday it'll click for us, that it'll all fall together, and finally we'll be full or content. See, see, this man is in this place where it's not working. What, what he thought would work, it's not working for him. And he's asking some deep questions of himself. And these are dangerous questions to ask. If, if you're in a place in life where you're not satisfied with where you are, man, if you start asking these questions, it's dangerous. I just want to warn you. Because these are the kind of questions that can lead you to, to say, maybe, maybe I need to downsize my house or quit this job that I hate that's sucking my life. Maybe, maybe I need to go and do something more meaningful or maybe I need to, to reprioritize my life. See, these are dangerous questions, but these are questions that ultimately can lead you to a fuller way of living if you have the courage to ask them. So this man, you know, he's rich, he's successful, he's a workaholic, he's alone. It's not working And he starts to ask himself some hard questions. Why am I doing this? What what on earth am I doing all of this for? 
And then Solomon kind of breaks from that guy and he reflects on this situation and here's what he offers us. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, out of curiosity, how many of you have heard these words before? Go ahead and raise your hand if you've heard them before. If not, no big deal. Um, Of those of you who have heard these before, how many of you have heard these before at a wedding? (laughs) These are big words at a wedding. I use these at a lot of weddings. I think they fit the context really well. But here's what I want to say. This is not primarily a romantic text. Solomon's counsel to this guy, his reflection, the point of this isn't, hey, go and get married. Because some of you have been in that place in life where you're not content and you thought marriage would do it for you and you got married and you found that it didn't do it for you. Just getting married, getting hitched, going on match.com and finding someone to share life with, like that's, that's not exactly what Solomon is talking about here. He's actually talking about something that is much simpler. He's talking about the importance, he's talking about the power of human connection of any type. And see, that's why it's not about marriage because in marriage, there isn't often a lot of human connection, even though you're living under one roof, sharing one life. And even though you may have a lot of friends or acquaintances or a big circle of people surrounding you, you may not actually have true, deep, authentic human connection. See, Solomon talks about the power of connection and why it's so important, even for people like us who who believe that to win means winning alone, that this human race is an individual sport. And here's what he says, that, that there are certain things that only connection can bring into your life. First, he talks about productivity. He says, two are better than one, for they have a better return for their work. Now, I was raised as a carpenter's son, which means that I was raised with this idea that you never pay anyone to do something that you can do for yourself, um, especially around the house. So I end up doing some home improvement things, and uh, because I am fiercely independent, I usually end up trying to do them alone. And by alone, I mean I drag my wife into it and ask her for help, and it's miserable, and she hates it. And so she says, why don't you invite a friend over to help you do this stuff? In other words, leave me the heck out of this stuff, and um, I can't blame her. And so on occasion, I'll cave, and I'll invite someone over, and here's what I find. Even if I invite one person over, it does more than half the burden, right? There's a synergy that comes when you're, when you're truly connected, when you're in community with people. Um, Solomon talks about that. He says that connection brings support. He says, if one falls down, he has no one to help him up. But you know, if, if there are two, then you fall down, you have someone to pick you up. See, see, today, you may be living a life that feels completely manageable for you. And yet, a day is coming when you get diagnosed with some sort of sickness or you find yourself unemployed, or you find yourself dealing with some struggle in your household or or with someone you love, and you will not be adequate. You will not be sufficient to keep yourself going. Solomon talks about the power of of support. Um, You know, here um, at St. John, we used to have uh, a family that was here. They were actually on staff. Uh, Some of you know Chris Moritz, Christine Moritz. She's married to Todd Moritz, and he was our CFO. Um, Incredible people. We're here for a long time. They left about I don't know, about seven years ago. Todd is uh, the superintendent of a Lutheran school, big Lutheran school in, um, in Southern California. And Chris has been diagnosed for the second time in just a few years with cancer. And because her cancer is pretty aggressive, she's trying some alternative treatments. And so she's in this, uh, this uh, right now in this um, care uh, facility in Tijuana, 
Mexico. And Chris, if you're watching, hey, Chris, we love you and we're praying for you. Um, and Todd had to, he's been down there with her, but he had to start a school year. This is his job, and so he had to leave. And man, I was, I was so blessed by the fact that another former St. John staffer who left probably eight years ago or so, Michelle Thompson, who now lives in Texas. So these people, you know, they parted ways years ago, living in different parts of the country. Michelle Thompson asked her boss for a week off of work, and, uh, and she went down, and she's hanging out with Chris Moritz in this, in this uh, hospital in Tijuana, Mexico, supporting her as she undergoes cancer treatment so Chris doesn't have to be alone. And you think, that's, that, that's beautiful. That's right, isn't it? See, that's the power of connection. Not just kind of having surfacey friends, but really deeply connecting with people. They show up when you need support. You don't even have to ask, and they're there. Uh, third, Solomon talks about enjoyment. He says, when two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? I'm not going to go too deeply into what that might mean. But, um, <laughs> but this is true in life generally, isn't it? That, that if you experience something great, you, know, you see a sunset or a sunrise, and it can be beautiful and it can be moving, but there's something even richer when you have someone to turn to you and say, isn't that, isn't that incredible? When you have someone to share it with, the enjoyment of life goes up when you have a connection. Uh, and then strength. He talks about you can be overpowered in life but when you're alone, but when you're with someone else, you have strength. Now, I don't think his list was meant to be exhaustive. I would add a couple other things. I would talk about value, you know, personal value. It's, it's often through relationships, through connections with other people that you discover your real value or even discover who you are. Self-awareness doesn't usually come by just staring in a mirror. It comes as a result of relationships. People help you see who you really are. So, so Solomon will talk about a life that looks very different than the life that we idealize. A life that's rich in connection. A life where connection brings all of these other things that we just can't get in any other way. And I think deep down, we kind of know this is true. We're like, yeah, okay. So why don't we live more toward these values in, in, in a life like this? Why do we find ourselves giving ourselves over to so many other things, prioritizing our life in so many other different ways around different, different, different you know, goals than the goal of connection? I think some is because we have this cultural narrative that keeps pushing us toward that, but I think some of it is we know that connection, real, authentic, deep connection, we know that it isn't easy. And yet here's what I'll say. Man, I believe that so many of the struggles that we experience personally, so many of the evils in our world, so many of the things that right now in your life are kicking your tail, that have you up against the wall feeling hopeless, I believe so many of those things are a result of our decision to go it alone in life. Let me just get personal about this. I told you I I grew up independent and... um, that worked fairly well until I got to college and then I found myself as a 19 or 20 year old guy and I was, um, you know, man, I had been a great student. I had gotten a great scholarship to, to college. I was a, a, a good musician. Uh, you know, I, I had lots of things going for me, but I basically done those things alone and I was fine with that. <laughs> I was better off with that, you know, because hey, no one can steal my credit, right? And then at about 19 or 20 years old, I found myself not in a good place. Um, The way I describe it, and I I don't mean this as an exaggeration, I felt like I was rotting away inside. Because I was in struggles, I was caught up in temptations that I was trying to manage, and I was a good Christian kid, and I was praying my way through them and reading my Bible, and yet I I was having no victory. I was being beaten up in those struggles. I, I was flooded with questions. Questions about my life. Did my life matter? 
what value did I have really? I mean, I, I knew the awards I had gotten or the things that were supposed to make me feel worthwhile, but those weren't working. Did I have value? Did I, did I matter to the world? Did I matter to, to anyone in my life? I had questions about, about who I was as a man. Did I matter as a man? Did I have what it takes? Did I contain with myself what it takes to be a man? And you know, those are things, no matter how successful you are, that you can never answer for yourself. That's what I discovered. Those are, those are answers that have to come from outside of you. And so at 19 or 20 years old, for the first time in my life, I experienced the power, the medicine, the healing of community. There was a group of guys who lived in my dorm, and it was a Christian college. And, uh, and these guys pulled me into community. And I say pulled me into community because they hung out and they had great relationships and they kept trying to engage me. And I was like, no, 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 I don't, I don't need any of that. I'm good. I'm good. I'm more than good on my own. And they just wouldn't take no for an answer. And they pursued me and they dragged me into their community. And when I, when I, when I got into the middle of that, I discovered something powerful. Not just the power of what it's like to have friends or to be in relationship, but, but I discovered something more powerful. I discovered that those struggles that were kicking my tail, they started to lose power. And they didn't go completely away, but they lost a lot of their power simply because I had connection. I discovered that those questions that haunted me, that, that just preoccupied me all the time, those questions about my life and if I mattered and if I had what it took, those questions began to become less important to me. It's almost like they found an answer without anyone actually answering them for me. When I tasted community, real community, authentic, deep community for the first time in my life, it was revolutionary for me. It was like a drug. It was better than any drug. It was, it was something so life-changing. And yet, you know, I graduated from college. We all went on to do other things. And, and what did I find? I found myself immediately reverting back to trying to do life alone. This has been a battle throughout my life over and over again, knowing how much sweeter life can be in community and yet resisting the pull of it in my life. And maybe the same is true for you. If so, I want you to see what uh, psychologist Larry Crabb says about this. He wrote a book called Connecting, and he says this. He says, imagine what could happen if God were to place within his people intangible nutrients that had the power both to prevent and reverse soul disease. And then imagine if God told us to share those nutrients with each other in a special kind of intimate relating called connection. Imagine what could happen if that were true, if we believed it, and if we devoted ourselves to understand what those nutrients were and how we could give them away. And we ask this hypothetical, what if instead of all the things that we make life about, what if we made life more about this, of, of discovering what those nutrients that God put into us, what they were, and how we could give them, in a way, give them away in a way that would be life-giving and affirming for someone else? See, I believe that this is not just an empty hypothetical. I believe this is exactly the power of community. And the truth is, again, some of you are living a dream life and yet, you're, because you're doing it alone, you know that you are living no kind of life. It's a life that, it, that is missing something so important. It's missing the power of connection. But do you want to know why I think the power of connection is so powerful, really? See, I, I think there's like a secret ingredient to all of this, and Larry Crabb began to talk about it. See, I think the power of connection is not just that there's something amazing when two people connect with each other. See, I believe that when two people connect with each other, specifically people who bear the name of Christ, 
People within whom the spirit of God dwells, within whom the, the love of God dwells, when those two people connect with each other in a deep, authentic way. See, here's what I believe makes it so powerful. I believe that in that connection, God himself is present. And so that connection becomes not just a connection between two people, it actually becomes a connection of two people with God at the very middle. Right, this is what Solomon says at the end of this section that we looked at in Ecclesiastes 4. He's been talking about two, and two is better than one, two is better than one, two is better than one. And then, and then in the last line he says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Three? <laughs> Where did three come from? We were talking about two and one. Now, on face value, this is just Hebrew poetry. One of the devices that Hebrew poets use is they, they uh, make a statement, and then they restate it, and then they restate it, and they restate it, and then in the last line, they progress or advance the statement. So you could say that Solomon is simply saying, you know, two is better than one, two is better than one, two is better than one, but three's even better than two. But I actually believe that Solomon, whether he knew it or not, was saying something deeper than that. I believe Solomon was telling us that when two people connect, especially people who, with whom the, within whom the Spirit of God dwells and the love of God dwells, when they connect, that God weaves himself into that relationship and does something truly life-transforming. See, I know it may sound a little kooky or mystical for you, but the scriptures actually speak this way often. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, it's kind of spoken about in the negative, but you'll see it. It says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. See, John says, if, if you want to have a connection with God who's invisible, try st first, try starting with a person you can see. Try flesh and blood because, you know, this idea that you can connect with an invisible God that you can't exactly see or touch or talk to, like that's That's tough. And if you want to have a legitimate connection with God, then, then start with a human person. I would say maybe for some of you, this is, this is the reason why you have a hard time connecting with God. You know, people talk about a connection with God and intimacy with God, and you're just kind of like, I don't get it. I don't know what that means. And, and maybe it could be something else, but maybe it's this. Maybe you haven't yet learned how to have a deep connection. You've got friends. You've got people in your life. You've got family you haven't learned how to have a deep, authentic connection with another person. And John, John seems to say that's kind of a, uh, a, what, a prerequisite for us to have a meaningful connection with God. Through human relationships, that's how we can learn to have a connection with God. But, but still, I believe it's deeper than that. I believe it's more mystical than that. See, I believe that in that connecting, that's how we get, that's one of the ways that we get a deeper connection with God himself. You know, the uh, middle-aged theologians, the reformers, they wrote about something they called the mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren. <laughs> you like that? It's like a middle-aged theologian term, right? The, the, the mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren. Basically, what they were talking about is Christian community, right? Brothers or sisters in Christ coming together and uh, consoling in each other and talking with each other and sharing life together. Christian community. And when you read them write about this, it's crazy how they talk about it because they hold it in equal esteem as a sacrament of baptism and communion. They talk about it as just as important as reading your Bible every day. They name it in, in the list of those th three other things as four things that God does to bring his grace into our lives and to, and to change us. 
And see, Jesus actually talked about this in his ministry. Matthew 18, he said, for where two or three are are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And we say this sometimes before a worship service or before a small group study. Oh yeah, Jesus is here. But do we get what he's actually saying? He says, we're two or three. We're, we're two people gather in my name where they are marked by my name and my spirit lives in them and my love lives in them. And, and they gather together. They connect with each other. I'm right there. So it's no longer the two connecting, but it's three. It's, it's you and you and, and God himself communing, connecting in a deep, transforming way. See, why is connection so powerful? Why is it so essential for us living out our lives in in a meaningful way? Because it's not just about us. It's ultimately about how God puts himself in the middle of those relationships and he pours out what we need most, what only he can give. See, See, I believe that one of our greatest needs, one of our deepest desires in life is to know that there's someone who delights in us you know what I mean? And isn't this true of you? I mean, just, I don't care if you're the manliest guy in the room. Isn't it true that you want someone to delight in you? You, you want, we all have this, this idea in our minds that, that you know, I, I want that person, I can walk into a room and their face lights up just because I'm there. See, I believe that deep down we all have a need, we have a desire to have someone value us affirm us, for someone to look inside of us and to say, you have a contribution to make, you have something to offer. Isn't that what we all want? See, I I believe deep down we all have a desire, we have a need to be accepted. Someone to accept us no matter what, who sees us as we are, who understands that we are not perfect, who understands our brokenness and all of the things that that haunt us, and yet they they accept us rather than pushing us away. See, I, I think we have a deep need for that. I think it's fundamental to who we are. And the only person who can satisfy that need, who can, who can fulfill that desire, is God himself. But the way that he does it, the way that he shows that he delights in you, the way that he accepts you, the way that he shows that, that you're a person of value and you have a contribution to make in this world, that you're not worthless, the way that he does that is not just through like meditating off into space and you know, through air particles, he gives that to you. So often the way that he gives it to you is, yes, through communion, through baptism, through his word, but he also gives it to you through the face of another person. The way you learn that God delights in you is when you've got a person in your life whose face lights up every time you walk into the room. And they're never going to do it perfectly, right? And that's why some of us get married because we think we found that person who's going to delight in us and they're going to value us and they're going to accept us no matter what. And then, you know, and then they see the real us and they kind of go like, ah, I'm not so sure. And this is going to take some work for me. And, and all of a sudden we're heartbroken. No, no, no. See, what you wanted out of that person was never really fair. That's actually something that only God can give you. But the way that God gives it to you is often through those human relationships. I'll tell you, when I was going through a hard season in my life, and, uh, and uh, I, I was just in a place where I didn't feel good about myself at all. And I was, I was deeply ashamed. And I remember when my dad sat me down and told me, I still love you no matter what. When I saw his delight, when I saw his acceptance, man, that taught me something about the love of God. It was something powerful and mystical that was deeper than just what he and I were connecting on. God was there. He was, he was opening up my heart. He was fulfilling a, a desire in me that only he could fulfill. He was healing a disease within me that only he could heal. So this is powerful, powerful stuff. So how do you get it? 
You know, how, how do you get your arms around it? I think this is much more like poetry than it is about algebra. So all of you engineers prepared to be disappointed um, that I can't, I can't give this to you exactly. But here's some things that maybe you can do if you want to know more about how to build connections. Like you've got relationships and you have friends, but, but this kind of life-giving connection that I'm talking about, you feel like it's elusive for you. Here's some things you can do. The first is to be rebellious. And by be rebellious, I mean you've got to rebel against this narrative that the only life that's truly worth living is a life lived alone, that you've got to stand apart and stand alone in order to be truly successful. And, and can I just call out the men in the room here? Guys, this is beaten into us from the time that we're young, that we're to be strong, we're to be independent, we're never to be needy or to rely on anyone, that, that, that we can't ever um, you know, need a connection, especially a close connection with another person, that we're supposed to be impervious to that. That's a lie from hell. And, and if you want connections, the first step is just to rebel against that lie. Because that lie is there to keep you from wholeness. It's to keep you from the healing that God has in, in mind for you. And so we've got to rebel against that. Second, we've got to be selective. You know, you can't have deep connections with a thousand people. It's only a few people. And, and so you've got to choose those people. And I've already talked about how when you have a connection with someone who, within whom the Spirit of God dwells and the love of God dwells, that God does something special in that kind of connection. And so I'd encourage you to make sure that you've got Christian community. But I'd also encourage you to make sure that you've got community and connections with people who don't know the love of God. Because while they might not be able to add a lot to you, because they don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, you can expose them, you can introduce them for the first time to the love of God. You can change their lives. And and again, you can't do that for everyone. You, You can do that for a few people. You have to be selective. Third, be proactive. It takes intentionality. Community won't always find you like it did me in college, but you have to pursue it. You have to to show up to a small group for the first time and risk that uncomfortability. You have to invite someone out for a drink or for dinner. Uh, You've got to chase it. Fourth, you have to be vulnerable. You know, again, we, we, have to, we have to push back against this cultural narrative that to connect, especially as men, it means nothing more than having a few beers and watching a football game. See, that's great. And talking about how the lawn looks this year, I like that stuff. That's good. But there's something deeper that God has in mind for us. So that's, that's, a, that's a step on the journey to deeper connection. But eventually you have to get to the place where you start to expose your life, your struggles, your questions, those deep things, those pains, those things that you need other people to come alongside you in. Uh, it takes vulnerability. And then, and then fifth, it takes patience. You know, I think so often we get addicted to, the, to like the quick hit, the, the quick high of a surfacey connection with someone. And, and you know, when you connect with someone for the first time, you kind of feel that rush. There's something powerful there. And then you connect with them again and it's just not as deep. And, and so we just move on or we give up. See, see, truly deep, meaningful, life-giving connections, they take work, they take time, they require patience, which I've already told you I'm not good at. And yet when you can hang in there, when you can keep investing, when you can keep connecting over the course of a life, and this is why, you know, although marriages of 50 years aren't easy, and we make them into such a romantic thing, but man, what pain and hard work goes into 50 years of committing to someone, but that's where the richness comes in, right? Of being patient. You experience a kind of connection that is so life-giving, it's, it's almost otherworldly. Maybe it is otherworldly. See, let me just close off this way that all over in our culture there is this message that to really win in the human race that you've got to do it alone. 
But I'll tell you, no matter how well you do, if you do it alone, you're still alone. And God wants more for you than that. He wants you to know the power of real community, real connection. He wants you to know your worth and your value, not just because his word says so, but because people in your life say so. He wants you to know what it's like to have someone pour into you the, the, the spirit of God, the God-given nutrients that heal your soul diseases. He wants that for you. The question today is, do you want that for yourself? Because if you do, you can have it. But it might take reordering your life. It might take being courageous. And for that, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the way that you've designed us. And we realize that your creation of us is it's so much more um, just marvelous and, and uh, mysterious than we can even imagine or know. But Father, we thank you that you reveal it through your scriptures, you reveal it through human experience, the, the things that are really meaningful. Father, remind us today that we were made to be in connection with each other, ultimately with you, but Father, also with each other. And so, Father, today, help us be rebellious, help us be proactive and patient and all the other things we talked about so that we can experience the life-giving nature of connections. Father, give us the joy of living life with other people who love us and affirm us and pour into us. And Father, through those connections, help us see more of how you feel about us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.